You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. We're going to talk about Trimphia. Let me give you a little background. So you heard the in- intro, right? But on a day-to-day basis, I see upwards of you know 40 patients a day, and up to half of them have psoriasis. So we see a lot of psoriasis patients. Since I joined Dr. Mentor's office, um, we've been kind of keeping tally of how many patients we've started on biologics, and at this point, it's over 2,600. So we, we use them. We use all of them. And I wish there was a magic bullet that worked for every single person. That would make my life easy. I wouldn't be up here if there was a magic bullet. So you have choices. You have a lot of choices. I didn't think that I would ever say, wow, now's a good time to have psoriasis. Psoriasis sucks, right? It's never a good time to have psoriasis. But with our treatment choices that we have now, we have incredible technology and really high-caliber drugs. So um, it's nice to to have those in our armament. Okay, let's talk about Trimphia, a select IL-23 inhibitor with pivotal studies versus adalimumab, which is considered the industry standard, at least at the time of the study. Okay, so the disclosure slide, it's big, it's full. Yes, I understand, but I'm just going to paraphrase it. This is an educational activity, but unfortunately you don't get CME. You get breakfast, though. The content is developed by Janssen Biotech. I did not develop this particular content. I am a paid consultant for, uh, or a paid speaker, I should say, for Janssen Biotech, and I'm presenting the information on, on their behalf. And in accordance, this is going to be according to FDA guidelines. So let me frame this by saying, this is according to the package insert. I'm not going to discuss anything that's outside of the package insert, like pregnancy or pediatrics or joints that's not on the label. So we're going to talk about everything that's on the label. Okay, here's the agenda. We're going to have an overview of plaque psoriasis. I know you guys know what psoriasis is, so we're really just going to highlight some key points. We'll introduce you to Trimphia. It's not a new medication. I know some people are, let me wait, let me see if there's longer-term data. Yeah, we've got longer-term data here. Clinical efficacy and safety according to the pivotal trials, which are named Voyage 1 and Voyage 2. They're very similar, but there's a few little differences. Important safety information. Then we'll talk about how to prescribe Trimphia. You know, most of us have EMRs now, but we'll show you how to write it if you're still old school, or to make sure that your EMR actually has it right, because sometimes your EMR will pull up a dose that actually isn't correct. I've seen that with other biologics. And then we'll wrap it up with some key highlights. Okay, overview of plaque psoriasis. Again, key points. You already know what plaque psoriasis is, but just some, some major points here. Um, It affects 7.5 million Americans, up to 3% of the population. Most of the patients have psoriasis vulgaris, or common uh, plaque psoriasis. Up to 80 to 90% of those patients have plaque psoriasis, but there can be overlaps. So just because a patient comes in to see you for you know, plaque psoriasis that you see on the scalp, elbows, and knees, don't forget to look in the genital area. Don't forget to look at the the nails and make sure you ask about their quality of life and make sure you also document any somatic symptoms associated with psoriasis. Does it burn? Do you have problems with flake and, and now you can't wear specific clothing? Do you have to wear a certain headpiece for work or, or a headgear or a hat for as part of your uniform, and it's hard to do that because of your psoriasis. Um, do you ruin clothing because of bleeding? Make sure you put that in, char- in the chart because it's not just a clinical snapshot. Psoriasis affects and invades uh, the patient's entire life, and it's important to know more than just the clinical picture. 20% of the patients who have psoriasis have moderate to severe disease and need some control of the internal inflammation. We know this, this is a chronic and painful disease, but it's also an autoimmune disease. So uh, a lot of patients 
unfortunately, still think, oh, it's just, it's just my skin. Give me a salve. I'm not worried about the inside because they don't know what's going on internally. All right, treatment challenges. You know, these days we've got high-caliber medications, and the expectation for better results is out there. So that can be a good thing if you have technology that, that works that well, and then it can also be a bad thing if, if patients are expecting these incredible results from very old technology. There is a loss of response to therapy. That can happen in any medication that you use or any therapy that you use. And poor adherence. Dr. Rosen just talked about that. You know, even if with an app, you still have patients who just don't get great, great uh, response or, or they're not adherent to the therapy. Um, the majority of patients still remain dissatisfied. You know, uh, even I, you know, if a patient comes in and they have 2% psoriasis, we're talking about, hey, um, are, are you happy where you're at? Do you, do you want to try something else? Um, I have some patients who say, I want it gone yesterday. Give me a, a, a nu nuclear bomb. Get rid of it. Whatever. And then I have other patients who are very, very conservative. Okay, so this is old data. This is from the National Psoriasis Foundation. They did a survey of over 5,600 patients um, through 2003 through 2011. Yes, this is old data, and they're collecting new data now, but this is what we have. It hasn't been reported yet. Uh, so we're talking about, we asked the, the question, hey, how much psoriasis do you have, and do you, do you, are you getting any treatment at all, or do you feel like you're undertreated? So this is the result. Um, the, the definition for moderate psoriasis is anywhere between 3 and 10 percent. The definition for severe psoriasis is above 10 percent. Yes, I know that, you know, if you have 1 percent psoriasis on your hand, that can be considered severe, but that's not how they, they quantified this survey. All right, how many patients uh, of the moderate uh, category were not receiving tr treatment? 25, almost 25 percent. How about severe psoriasis? 10% were still not receiving treatment, which is incredible uh, and, and disappointing, actually. And I don't know if it's because the patient says, no, I don't want therapy, or a patient doesn't even go seek uh, treatment, or if it's because the, the provider that they're seeing doesn't offer something. Uh, hopefully it's not the latter. All right, how about patients who thought, you know, I, yes, I'm treated, but I'm not treated well enough. I'm undertreated. 30% of patients with moderate psoriasis felt that they were undertreated, and 22%, 22% with severe psoriasis felt they were undertreated. All right, let's introduction to, to Trimvaya. This is an overview. So it is, let's read the indication. It is indicated, this is in the package insert. It's indicated for treatment of adult patients, meaning 18 or above, that's what was included in the study, you had to be 18, with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis who are candidates for systemic therapy or phototherapy. Nowhere in that indication does it say you have to try and fail X, Y, Z. So what can you conclude? That means it's a first-line therapy for patients with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Now, I understand that insurance companies don't want to consider that, but the indication says that it is. It is supplied as a 100-milligram syringe, single dose. They have to inject all of it. You can't save it for later, and it requires refrigeration. At this particular time, you can leave it out for about four hours. They're doing some further studies to find out exactly how long can you leave this particular protein out uh, and it still be effective. Why is it an injection? Because it's the size of the protein. It can't be ingested or absorbed orally, so you have to give it as a sub-Q injection. It is injected sub-Q at week zero, four, and every eight weeks thereafter. So in the first year, you get eight doses. Let's talk about safety, important safety information, or ISIs. There are three main keys here, three. Number one, it may increase the risk of infection. It doesn't say it does. It may, and actually the FDA said, yeah, you can say that. It may increase the risk of infection. 
If a patient has a serious infection or has a chronic infection, yes, you, of course you want to get your patient treated. Now, the other thing that I also say to my patients is, if there's any reason you need to come off therapy, Dr. Google, not my favorite, Dr. Google tells you you need to come off therapy. Uncle Guido, Aunt Mary, Dr. X, if anybody tells you you need to come off therapy, you should be calling my office because I'm the prescriber, and I want to make sure that you have the right information. I'm not saying everybody's wrong, but please include me. The other thing here is tuberculosis. That's with anything that modifies the immune system. You should do a tuberculosis test. You should screen, whether that's a PPD, a quantiferon gold, a T-spot, whatever you're doing. The only thing I would not recommend that you do for a screening test is a chest X-ray. Now, I understand if a patient's had latent tuberculosis and all of their tests come back positive, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I understand that. But if you're just screening with a chest X-ray because, oh, it's so simple, don't do that because you might be missing extrapulmonary tuberculosis. All right, so screen your patients for tuberculosis. Interestingly enough, in the study, 105 patients tested positive in their, in their tuberculosis test. So they had latent tuberculosis, not active tuberculosis, latent tuberculosis. Those particular patients were allowed in study. Tremphia was not held. How many patients converted to active tuberculosis? Big guess, zero, zero. All right, avoid the use of live vaccines. Again, that's grandfathered in from all biologics. And we already learned that, guess what? Now we have shingles, a vaccine that's not a live vaccine, and you should be recommending that for your patients. I actually tried to go to Walgreens and get, um, I know I don't, I'm, I'm not 50 yet, I'm approaching it, but I'm not there yet. I went to Walgreens and I said, hey, I want, I want the new shingles vaccine. And the first thing, I'm not gonna tell, who it was, physician, NP, or nurse, nurse practitioner, or PA, I'm not going to say, but she said, how old are you? And I said, oh, I'm 48. She goes, you can't have it. I said, what? I'll pay cash. We're not going to use my, my insurance. Nope, it's not indicated below 50. I guess i got to wait till I'm 50. But as soon as I turn 50, I'm going to get my vaccine. It is not a live vaccine, and yes, you can use it with biologic therapies. All right, let's talk about the mechanism of action. So IL-23, the IL-23 T-helper-17 pathway is a new pathway that is, is rec gaining recognition for a significant pathway in the production and proliferation of, psoriatic, uh, of psoriasis and psoriatic diseases. Okay, so looking here, you've got something that triggers or activates a dendritic cell. Now, we don't know exactly what those are. We know some of them, but we don't know it for every single patient. Sometimes that's an infection. Sometimes that's an, a major emotional event like an IRS audit or bankruptcy or a, a serious divorce or a death in the family, some emotional stress. It can be medications as well, too. Um, we, we do know a lot of things that do it, but unfortunately, we don't know everything. So if we could ever figure out what is that thing that actually activates the dendritic cell and leads to the path of psoriasis, we're on the road to a cure. any rate, something that triggers and activates this dendritic cell the dendritic cell then releases a cytokine, which is IL-23. It's not the only one it releases, but it's a major one that it releases. This particular cytokine then tells this naive T cell, this T cell is just born, and it's waiting for a signal to tell it, tell me what to do, give me what to do. This particular native T cell, a naive T cell, preferentially differentiates into T helper 1, T helper 17, and T helper 22 cells. Those particular cells then go on to release more cytokines, inflammatory cytokines, of which we're talking about today, IL-17A, IL-17F, and IL-22. So this is the pathway.
Tremphia works at this particular site. So I'm blowing up the molecule, or blowing up the protein, IL-23. That's IL-23 right here in the pink. This is Tremphia, this green three-lobed uh, uh, image. It attaches to this receptor site, or the P19 subunit, of, of the IL-23 molecule. When you have this attachment, it can no longer work on the naive T cell as well. So what happens down here? You have a reduction in the serum of IL-17A, IL-17F, and IL-22. So that's showing this, a reduction in those particular inflammatory cytokines and chemokines. All right, let's move on to the pivotal trials, clinical efficacy and safety data in the VOYAGE-1 and VOYAGE-2 trials. This is VOYAGE-1. So this first line is the Trimphia group. This is randomized to, disregard, let me go back. There, two to one to two. All right, so in the Trimphia group, the patients are loaded normally at week zero, week four, and then every eight weeks. At the placebo uh, arm here, they get placebo injections, but then cross over at week 16 to Trimphia. Here is a third arm, which is Humira, again, considered an industry standard for plaque psoriasis. And they are loaded at their normal loading, which is two shots on day one, a shot a week later, and then every other week after that. So the primary endpoints that we're looking at at week 16. Other endpoints we look at at Voyage, two, at Voyage 1 are at week 24 and also at week 48. Voyage 2, very, very similar. Right on up until week 24, you have the same arms, Tromphia, Placebo, Crossover, and then Humira. At week 24 to week 28, you have a re-randomization. So patients who achieved a, a POSI 90 are then re-randomized. So we'll discuss this uh, a little bit later in, in the lecture. All right, so basically here, this is the yellow box. I will refer to the yellow box later on. Okay, as far as the background for Voyage 1 and Voyage 2, we've got inclusion criteria, we've got exclusion criteria, and then the efficacy measures are the primary endpoints and co-primary endpoints and major secondary endpoints. All right, the inclusion criteria, you had to be an adult. That means 18 or above. You had to have enough psoriasis. You had to have at least 10% body surface area. You had to have a POSI score of, of at least 12. Now, if you don't do studies and don't do POSI scores, don't worry about the POSI score. We do use that as a, a scoring mechanism here, but don't feel like, ah, I've got to do POSI scores in my, in my clinic. No, you don't have to do that. Just make sure that when you're, you're documenting that a patient has plaque psoriasis, include the body surface area, and also, like I said, include the somatic symptoms associated with their psoriasis. All right, so back to the study inclusion criteria. 18, you gotta have stable, confirmed plaque psoriasis, so not an eruptive erythrodermic psoriasis or eruptive guttate psoriasis. So it has to be stable for at least the past six months. You have to be a candidate for phototherapy and systemic therapy. And then another scoring mechanism that we use is called an investigator's global assessment. What is that? All right, so investigator's global assessment is how red is the plaque, how scaly is the plaque, and how indurated. You know, we're in Texas. Everything is big, right? I've never seen a psoriasis plaque that big. All right, but there can be some very thick, warty plaques of psoriasis. So that's the scoring mechanism that we use for how indurated, red, and, and, and scaly is the plaque. All right, you weren't allowed in the trial if you'd been on Tremphia before, and so maybe in Europe or something like that, uh, or if you'd been on Humira. Why? Because that's one of the arms that we used. You could also not have a current malignancy, 
and you couldn't have had a malignancy in the past five years. So your question immediately, well, what if you had a malignancy six years ago? Yeah, you were allowed in the study. All right, the efficacy measures, co-primary endpoints. This is versus placebo at week 16. How many patients got to a posi-90, at least a posi-90? All right, the other, uh, you know, the FDA wants two things. They want, you know, posi score, and they also want investigators' global assessment, some other scoring mechanism. All right, the investigators' global assessment was how many patients got to either zero, which is clear, or one, which is minimal. Again, that's looking at the redness scale and in duration. Major secondary endpoints versus Humira include a posi 90 at week 16, 24, and 48, posi 75 at week 16, and we'll discuss why that's in there. Well, that's redundant. Why do you have that? You just talked about posi 90. We'll tell you why. An investigator's global assessment of zero at week 24 and 28, and or an investigator's global assessment of zero or one at week 16, 24, and 48. Another secondary endpoint, you know, they split data left and right and up and down. You know, there's all kinds of data that can be split out. But another thing that they wanted to look at was, how about scalps? How does a scalp do at week 16? So, Tremphia versus placebo for scalp. All right, baseline characteristics. If you were a Caucasian male above 18, you were the majority of the trial participants. So, 70% were male, 82% were Caucasian. The, av the mean age, not the average age, the mean age was 44. The mean weight had just happened to be 90 kilograms, so exactly half were below 90 kilograms and exactly half were above 90 kilograms. Mean POSI score, 22. Body surface area, almost 30% in both Voyage 1 and Voyage 2. How many, per what percentage had a severe IgA? 20, about 25% across. Previous conventional therapies, about 60% across. Now, this doesn't mean they failed. It just means they've tried conventional therapies before, including methotrexate or other systemics. Previous biologics, uh, about 20% of patients had been on biologics before. Previous topicals, I'm surprised that's not 100%. I can't think of a single psoriasis patient that I've seen in the past 11 years that I haven't given a topical medication to, so I'm kind of surprised about that number, but it is what it is. Uh, over 90% of patients have been on topicals. What about phototherapy? More than half, both Voyage 1 and Voyage 2. All right, let's talk about the co-primary endpoints. Again, the FDA wants two studies with the same primary endpoints. This is Voyage 1, right here, Voyage 1. Significant skin clearance, so we're looking at POSI-90, 73% of patients with Tremphia versus 3% placebo achieved a POSI-90. How about an investigator's global assessment score of 0 or 1, 85% of patients versus 7 in the placebo group. All right, this is going to look very similar, so watch closely. Voyage 2, did you see that? Voyage 1, Voyage 2. Repeat. Go back. Voyage 1. Voyage 2, almost mirror image of each other. 70% of patients in the Voyage 2 trial got to POSI 90 by week 16 versus 2% in the placebo group. 84% of patients were a score of 0 or 1 versus 8% in the placebo group. This is what real results look like. This is an actual picture of a patient in the study. Look at these thick, scaly plaques, and it's bloody right here. This patient's been scratching, picking, peeling, whatever. So one of the things that Dr. Mentor will tell patients is it is important not to scratch and pick your psoriasis, and already their eyes are rolling. Yeah, right. Tell me not to scratch or pick something that's incredibly itchy. He gives them an analogy. He says, think of your psoriasis like a baby's diaper rash. 
You know what to do with a baby's diaper rash, and you know what not to do with a baby's diaper rash. You wouldn't scrub, scratch, pick, pull. You wouldn't do that to a baby's diaper rash. That's how you need to think about your psoriasis. So don't think that, oh, I need to pull the scale off for the topical medicine to get down to the base of the plaque. That's not what you do. All right, so this particular patient started off with a POSI score of 30.9 and got down to a POSI 3. This is after three doses, only three doses of Trimphia. This patient is 57, had a BMI of 33.4, um, started off with 36 percent, over a third of his body was covered with psoriasis. He had had psoriasis for more than 18 years. Previous therapies, topical, phototherapy, biologics, conventional systemic therapy. So again, after three doses, this is what you can achieve. All right, let's move on. Superiority versus Humira. Now keep in mind, the North American data sites, this was a global study, but when you're talking about using against Humira, you have to use U.S.-based Humira, so really we're only talking about uh, the United States and Canada. All right, looking at POSI 90 at weeks 16, 24, and 48, consistent results. We're looking at week 16 here. The top line is Trimphia, the bottom line is, is Humira. 73% of patients were at POSI 90 by week 16 versus 41%. That shows superiority to Humira. How about at week 24? 80% of patients were at POSI 90 versus 44%. Again, superiority. 73% at week 48 versus 46%. That's Voyage 1. This is another patient in the, in the uh, study, an act, actual patient, not a drawing, an actual patient. So at week zero, a lot of inflammatory, widespread psoriasis. Look, it's very confluent here. He's almost got a sleeve of psoriasis. He's 36, BMI is 31.1, 54, more than half of his body is covered with psoriasis. He's had it for 12 years. What a burden for this particular, not only for his skin, but also internal organs, right? Previous therapies, topicals, and biologics. This is after three, more, uh, more than three doses right here, week 16. Posi is already down to 8.4 from 32.8. And at week 48, his posi is down to 2.8. All right, back to Voyage 1. More than 9 out of 10 patients achieved a posi 75. Why are we going back down to posi 75? Weren't we just talking about posi 90? Well, you have to compare apples to apples. Humera's primary endpoint was a posi 75 at week 16. So they extracted out the data and said, all right, let's compare it to what their primary endpoint was. At week 16, 91% of patients in the Trimphia group, top group is Trimphia, 91% of patients were at a posi 75 versus 70% in the Humera group. Again, it demonstrates superiority to their primary endpoint. How about going to the score, the IGA score of 0 or 1 at week 16, week 24, and week 48? More than 8 out of 10 patients achieved an IGA score of 0 or 1. So 84% versus 61% at week 16. Again, superiority to Humira. 84% versus 54% at week 24, and 79% to 54% at week 48 throughout. All right, complete clearance of plaques. So we're talking about an IGA score of zero, a major secondary endpoint they looked at at week 24 and week, tw and week 48. 53% of patients were at an IGA score of zero versus 23 in the lower group, Humira. Nearly two times more, nearly two times more at week, at week 48, which is 40, 47% versus 24%. How about POSI 100? Again, splitting the data. 
out. Posi 100, 50% at week 24 versus 24, and 48% versus 23. All right, so now we've got data all the way up to almost two years now, week 100. Now, this is global information, including North American sites. Okay, so we looked at, this is all the same here, all the way up to week 48. Disregard, let me go back. Let me go back because there's something here. All right, something uh, all the way up here to week 24 and then through week 48, it's the same. But in the open label extension, that's what we're looking at through week week one, week 48 through week 100. The top group had always stayed on Trimphia, and they're staying on Trimphia uh, every eight weeks. The placebo group crossed over. They're still on Trimphia. This particular group, the Humira group, crossed over, but they didn't get a loading dose. So we're looking at week 48 through week 100. Really... We're looking at this top arm right here. Consistent POSI 90 response rates. We're looking at week 52 and week 100. For this is the open label extension, which means everybody's getting drug and the investigators know who's getting drug. At week 52, 82% of patients had a POSI 90, and at week 100, 84% had a POSI 90. So this means if you responded and got to POSI 90 and you stayed on drug, you have a great chance of doing well consistently. How about IgA score of zero? At week 52, that's 55% versus 55% at week 100. So again, if you respond, you're very likely to do well consistently. All right, other efficacy analysis. All right, remember the yellow box we talked about? So this was the group. These are POSI responders, POSI 90. All of these patients achieve POSI 90, and now they're re-randomized. These Great responders are now, some are taken off, and then others are kept on Trimphia. So the FDA wants to know, okay, great, you've got a good drug, you respond, but what happens if you take a patient off? Are we going to see any treatment, uh, abrupt uh, uh, stop of the drug? Are we going to see anything, an explosion of psoriasis? Are we going to see any medical emergencies? So the FDA wants to know that information as well, too. All right, so this demonstrates therapeutic longevity. If you stay on Trimphia, that's the top group, you continue to do well. At week 48, 89%. At week 72, 86%. Now keep in mind, this starting here at week 24, all of these patients only got four injections of Trimphia. This group, the bottom group, was taken off and re-randomized to placebo. So they had been off drug for about five months, all the way up to here, week 48 over a third of patients still maintain their POSI response. Over a third. Now, does that mean that all the rest completely lost efficacy? No, they just didn't meet the benchmark of what's considered a POSI 90. There's a slow, steady decline, not a crash and burn. All right, at week 72, 12% still had a POSI 90. Why is this important? Because patients come off therapy for all kinds of reasons, whether they're good or bad. All right, they may get misinformation. Oh, I lost insurance, and I didn't want to tell you, and now I'm back, and my psoriasis is worse. Or, oh, um, I was scared to stay on the drug. Or, oh, I I wanted to to save my pens because uh, I'm, I'm worried that I might lose my insurance, or I'm worried about cost. Uh, patients come off for all kinds of reasons. So we want to say, if you abruptly stop the medication, what's going to happen? So again, a slow, steady decline. But even at week 48, one-third of the patients are still at a POSI 90. All right, what about scalp data? More data. 
scout there's there's a lot of um, companies that are dissecting out and looking at specific anatomical regions like the genitals the the nails or scalps there are subsections that they're looking at in patients with psoriasis so how many patients were considered a zero or one an IGA score of zero or one at week 16 83 percent of patients with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. So here's an example. This is it's not an actual patient, an example of a patient with plaque psoriasis. So um, me being in the military, you know, I have to have my hair off of my collar and up. If I had psoriasis like that all along, my ears and the back of my neck, I would feel very uncomfortable going to work every single day and people seeing that. Um, the other thing, too, is topical medicines. Again, people are not adherent with their topical medicines. They're messy, they're greasy, and they are not sexy. Right? You ask a patient to put, put this medicine on, and then I want you to put a, a heating cap on, and I want you to sleep like that. Not sexy. right? So patients are just not real excited about putting topical things on their scalp. And if you have really, really long hair, it can be hard to get it down to the base of your scalp. Or if you have thick, thick hair, if you're lucky enough to have thick hair, it can be hard to get it down to the base of your scalp. The other thing that patients do is they scratch and pick. And even in the, in the room, you say, okay, tell me when you're most itchy, and when do you scratch the most? I don't scratch. What are you talking about? They're scratching right in front of you, and they don't even realize that they're scratching. It becomes a compulsion. So it's important to let your patients know um, uh, scratching and picking your scalp is not helping your psoriasis. I don't expect perfection, but I expect improvement. So I I want you to really consider that you're you're, uh, perpetuating your psoriasis by scratching and picking. Okay, again, back to the data. At week 16, 83% were zero or an IGA score of 0-1 versus 15% in the placebo group. All right, what about other subgroups? We're looking at age, race, gender, body weight, and, you know, what if they're biologic naive? They've never been on a biologic before versus, hey, this person has been on other biologics. Are we going to see a difference in response? And the answer is no. We don't see any statistical difference in the response among subgroups with Trimphia. Let's dissect that data out a little bit. All right, what about body weight? Remember we said that the mean body weight, exactly half of the patients were below 90 kilograms and the other half were above uh, 90 kilograms. All right, so looking at POSI 90 at week 24, 77% of patients below 90 kilograms versus 73% above 90 kilograms. No statistical difference. Looking at Humira, that's 60 and 34. Safety profile. So when we're talking about safety, all of the global sites, safety information was included here. If you're comparing it to Humira, it's only the North American sites, so you're going to see a difference in the numbers of groups there. All right, over 1,700 patients with moderate severe plaque psoriasis received Trimphia, and they were included in the safety information. Almost uh, uh, more than 1,300 patients, 1,393, were exposed to Trimphia for at least six months, and a little less than that um, were exposed for a year. The safety was pooled from both Voyage 1 and Voyage 2. All right, infections occurred in 23% of the Trimphia group versus 21% in the placebo group. Infections happen. Right? So you get skin infections, you get a cold sore, whatever. Is it related to the drug? Maybe not. What about serious infections? Those are the things that, you know, I wake up and, you know, hmm, my eyes open up and say, all right, how many severe infections did we have? The rate of severe infections for the Trimphia group and placebo group was less than or equal to 0.2%, so a very low number of, severe, of serious infections. All right, so here's the pooled information. Trimphia group was 823, the Humira group 196. So again, the disparity there is because this is global. This is only North American. And the placebo group is 422. How about total adverse events? 49, 49, and 47. So 
all kinds, and when you're talking about a clinical study, if you do clinical studies, you know what I'm talking about. So if a patient has a stubbed toe, if they have a cracked tooth, if they get a black eye, if they have a broken finger, that is included as an adverse event. It's not necessarily related to the drug. What about serious adverse events? Anything that requires hospitalization, multiple antibiotics, or a surgical procedure. Serious adverse events, 1.9%, 2.6%, 1.4%. Okay, what if we're, we're fractionating that out and say, all right, how many serious adverse events or adverse reactions, disregard, adverse reactions are we seeing greater than or equal to 1%? So this is a filter. This is not including all the adverse reactions. This is the ones that are just greater than or equal to 1%. This is uh, uh, Tremphia versus placebo through week 16. So Tremphia, Humira, placebo. So we're talking about upper respiratory tract infections, headache, injection site reactions, arthralgia, diabetes, uh, diarrhea, gastroenteritis, tinea infections, and herpes. Let's make sure that we talk about this here at the bottom. Tinea infections or herpes, herpes simplex infections. None of these were the disseminated form. These were all very localized. All right, let's talk about injection site reactions. Keep in mind, when you're doing a study, if a patient reports pain from their injection site, if they report a bruise, if they report redness, that is absolutely marked down as an injection site reaction. Doesn't mean that all of these patients had true hypersensitivity responses. All right, upper upper respiratory tract infections, 14.3 versus 10.7 versus 12.8. How about headache, 4.6, 1.0, 3.3? And the numbers go down from there. I'm not seeing anything here that makes me lose sleep at night. The other thing that um, I infer from this particular data is, you know, efficacy is really not compromised by safety. How about through week 100? So some patients are like, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait, I'm not going to prescribe, I want to see some more data, I want it to be out for a little while just to make sure that nothing serious happens, nobody grows third eyes or gets a tail. Okay, I understand that. Some people are very conservative and that's not a bad thing to be. All right, so we're looking at week, uh, at year one or week zero to 48 and over here is week zero to 100. Uh, adverse events did not increase, actually they decreased. Serious adverse events remained very similar, 5.8 versus 6.5%. Infections went down. Serious infections went down. So we're not seeing a compromise to a patient's safety with cumulative exposure to the drug. This is out of Voyage 1. Now, why do we use that whole, what's 100 patient years? You know, a patient's not on drug for 100 years. You don't live that long. Okay, I understand. So that is the common denominator that we have to use. So if one patient was on drug for 100 years, right, that's never going to happen. If you talk about 100 patients on drug for one year, yeah, that's, that's a common denominator. Or 50 patients on drug for two years, that equals the same common denominator of 100. Why do we have to use that? Because the placebo group crosses over, and we have to include their data and the safety information. All right, to reiterate, it may increase the risk of an infection. Not that it does, it may. If a patient has an infection, make sure you evaluate it. And I get a lot of patients say, oh, I'm sick, can you give me a pack?" I'm like, no, I'm not your primary care doctor. If you want to do that, okay, but how I do it, no, I'm not your primary care doctor, and I don't know what is the best for H-flu this day, I don't know, not influenza, H-flu, I don't remember. I want you to see your primary care doctor. Oh, no, I have a primary care doctor. You need to see somebody. Urgent care, I'm okay with that. See urgent care, but let me know what's going on. If somebody tells you you need to come off drug, I need to be involved in that. 
How about tuberculosis? We discussed that. 105 patients on the study actually were tested positive for latent tuberculosis. They were allowed to stay on Trimvia. Uh, yes, they were treated, but they were allowed to stay on Trimvia, and none of them had active tuberculosis. But you should screen your patients and make, your sh make sure you're using an appropriate screening tool. Chest X-ray is not an appropriate screening tool unless a patient has been treated and they have uh, consistently positive test results down the road. Immunizations. Um, if you can get your patient immunized with specific live vaccines, why is that important? Okay, I'm in the military, right? Uh, we have to get yellow fever, and we also have to get smallpox, and I have to get anthrax. Anthrax is not right. Anthrax is not a, I do, but anthrax is not a live vaccine. But it's important because those particular patients who need those particular uh, vaccines, especially yellow fever because it has 10% live virus in that particular vaccine. So be really, really careful with that one. Um, the other thing, too, is, you know, yes, it's a theoretical risk because in the literature there has not been one case of a reported viremia from a patient who's been in on biologic, been on a biologic, and accidentally got a live vaccine. I've had a few patients who've accidentally gotten live vaccines, and I, thank God, knock on wood, I haven't had a problem. But none in the literature that has been reported of a true viremia. All right, adverse reactions, the most common, greater than or equal to 1%, upper respiratory tract infection, headache, injection site reaction, arthralgia, diarrhea, gastroenteritis, tinea infection, and herpes. But again, they weren't the disseminated forms, the usual offenders. All right, prescribing Trimphia. You've decided, hey, I want my patient on Trimphia. How do I go about getting it? How do I go about prescribing it? Yes, it's intended for the use uh, under the guidance and supervision of a physician or a physician assistant. Trimphia may be administered by a health professional. Usually the first injection they get in the office, and that's when you can teach them. The syringe has a, a little funny click to it, so there's a sample practice ones that they can use. So the, the click noise can sometimes be a little alarming for some patients. But in my experience, I've also used the Janssen Care Path nurse coordinators to call and talk you know, a patient through injecting. Um, that's you know, after the first one's done in my office. Um, or there's also YouTube videos. I personally have looked uh, for a YouTube video on how to inject Trimphia, and there's some really good ones out there. That's not according to Janssen. That's just how I do it in my practice. All right, so it's a sub-Q injection, and it's injected on the first day, four weeks later, and then every eight weeks thereafter. Make sure your EMR does say that particular information. All right, how do I get it covered? Guess what? Everybody gets your first pen. Everybody, no matter who they are, the first pen. I actually even had a patient who was not a U.S. citizen who got their first pen. All right, so the so simple, PSO, simple program, trial program, everybody gets a pen. They don't do samples, right? But you can get the first pen delivered to your office. You fill out one form, and in three days later, they get the injection to the office. One caveat to that. The patient has to answer the phone to make sure that it is delivered. And in an election year, that can be very difficult for a patient to answer a telephone that they don't recognize. So answer the phone or answer the email. Otherwise, you don't get your pen. It's $0 for the first dose. Now, our, what about Medicare? What about Medicaid? Yeah, they get their first pen. It's the next pen that could be a little tricky. So make sure you investigate those things and maybe discuss it with your, your representative before you consider doing that. Um, the worst thing you can do is, hey, I've got your first pen, and oh, I can't get you anymore. Don't give a patient hope and then take it away from them. Make sure you investigate that. All right, so, so simple trial program gives you the first injection no matter what. 
all right, you've got a patient you want to stay on Trimvia. And for most commercially insured patients, they get rolled over. Janssen Care Path is now instituted, and it investigates their insurance coverage. So they should pay $5 per injection. If there's going to be any delay in that, oh, it's you've got to do a peer-to-peer. Oh, it's um, we're, we're doing your prior, we're re-reviewing your prior authorization. Oh, we didn't get your first prior authorization. Please turn it in again. Okay, here it is again. But if it's delayed, you can get a your pens from Janssen Link. So if it's delayed greater than five days, or if it's denied, commercially insured patients are still eligible to receive it at no cost. If it's approved, it's only five dollars. All right, summing it up with key highlights. Tremphia has a demonstrated safety profile. We looked at the data, the three major things you need to worry about. It may increase infection, you gotta do tuberculosis screening, and no live vaccines. It shows significant clearance. At, at week 16, POSI 90 results were 73% for Tremphia. IgA score of 01, 85% for Tremphia versus placebo. It shows demonstrated superiority to Humira, looking not only at POSI 90, but also looking at their own bar of POSI 75 at week 16. 73% of patients were POSI 90 by week 16 versus 41% for the Humira group. Therapeutic longevity, nine out of 10 patients, again, if they get to the POSI 90, maintain or have a very good chance of maintaining their response. Not only at week 48, but the rates were consistent at week 72. Okay. There's a references, take a picture. No, you can't take pictures. But there's a references if you want. Bring your microscope up and take a look. All right, are there any questions concerning the data that I just presented? I think you can, are we doing the, the online questions? No, online questions? All right, are we, we, we have a few minutes. Are we allowing questions? Yes. Great question. All right, so I'm going to repeat the question. How long do I give a patient to uh, achieve response before I say, okay, this isn't working, let's go to something else? I usually give between four and six months. Now, I will, you know, the caveat to that is if I have a patient who comes in and gets their first injection and they got their second injection and then it's time for their third injection and not only are they not better, they're worse, I'm considering changing therapy. But you've got to give it some time to work. Right? I have patients who come in, and after their second injection, oh, I'm no better. I'm like, wait a second. We've got to give this a little more time. Even the studies gave it longer than that. All right? Now, if there's a specific reason why they can't stay on it, that's different. Or if they're getting worse, they're dying on the vine. I'm not going to let them die on the vine. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so the question was, how long do you wait after a patient has gotten a live vaccine before you start therapy? This is the world according to Cynthia or WWMD, what would Mentor do? All right, so we get a lot of those questions. What would Mentor do? We wait a month if they've gotten a live vaccine, especially yellow fever. Again, there's no specific guidelines for that, not yet. The last guidelines for psoriasis care were in 2008. Dr. Mentor was the chair for that. New guidelines should be out the end of this year versus early 2019. Yes, ma'am. Do I check for hepatitis? Again, the world according to Cynthia, the world according to Dr. Mentor, yes, we check for hepatitis B, specifically hepatitis B. Um, While that is more important with other therapies, we still do check it. Why? Because a patient shouldn't have uh, an active infection when you start therapy, right? And hepatitis B is an important infection. 
Good questions. Bueller? 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 Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Gotcha. That's a real, a real problem. Okay, so her question was, what do you do about the Medicare patient? You're running a hepatitis panel, and now Medicare doesn't want to pay for it, and this patient is stuck with a bill. World according to Cynthia. Uh, we have a lab that is willing to do a hepatitis panel, which is ABC, not fractionating out any core antibody or core antigen, uh, for $30 talk to your lab, and we have our patients pay for that ahead of time. Medicare will cover a single hepatitis test uh, for patients, that means age 65 or above, or lower if they're, yeah, actually, I don't think it's lower um, if somebody younger is on Medicare, but they'll cover it once. But repetitive testing, they won't. So work on that, talk to your lab, see if you can get a special price for your patients. We have a lab you know, in our, in our building, and we work with them but see what you can do. Um, I'm not going to tell you to fudge any codes or anything like that, but if they have any symptoms, abdominal pain, diarrhea, any of those things, make sure you include that in the chart. I'm not saying make anything up. Okay. They had an episode of diarrhea. Okay. Yes. Any other questions? No. Okay. So we finished right on time. Excellent. Enjoy the conference. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.